do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's remember the context into which these words are spoken. John says that it's Thursday evening, that Jesus is with the disciples. It's the time of Passover. But where Matthew, Mark, and Luke emphasize the breaking of the bread and the sharing from the cup, John emphasizes that Jesus took a basin and a towel and washed the feet of the disciples. He then told them that one of them was about to betray him, one who sat at table with him, about to betray him. They became very apprehensive, and he spoke these words. We have three imperative verbs, and then one simple but very profound declarative sentence. Let's take a look. The first imperative is this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. What's really significant about this sentence to me is that the word for troubled is a word that John has just used three times to describe Jesus himself. Chapter 11, the story of the death of Lazarus. Word has gone to Jesus up in Galilee that his friend Lazarus is very sick, near death. By the time Jesus and the disciples have traveled some 90 miles southward, one of the sisters, Martha, runs out to meet them and says, Oh, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Do you believe he will live again? No, he's really dead. He's been dead four days. His body has started to smell. I understand. Do you believe he will live again? Oh, do you mean I'm Pharisee or Sadducee? I believe in the resurrection. I believe my brother will live again at the resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Believe you this? And she said, I believe you are the Messiah of God. That was the right answer. And then he moved on a little farther. He saw Mary, the other sister. They went out to the tomb. And John says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who were with her weeping, he was troubled. Same word, tarasso in Greek, same word. He was troubled. And when we dealt with that story a few weeks ago, I told you that most scholars believe it means that Jesus was troubled, that death was still so oppressive, so destructive of families, of friendships. It troubled him deeply. Very next chapter. This fateful week has gone on. A Gentile has heard about Jesus and wants to see him. He asked Philip, may I see him? Philip said, let me check. He asked Andrew, is it okay for this Gentile to see Jesus? Let me check. He asked his brother Peter, all right for this Gentile to see Jesus? He said, I think it's all right. And Jesus 
got to meet this Gentile and chat briefly with him. Knowing this Gentile was going to have as much trouble as the Jews were with the idea of a crucified Messiah, he said, in Tarasso, troubled he was, should I ask that this cup pass from me? I shall not. I shall not ask that this cup pass from me. It is for this hour that I have come. The very next chapter, they're in that upper room. He's just washed their feet. He's just announced to them that one of the twelve will himself betray him into the hands of the enemy. And Jesus was Tarasso. He was troubled. Now, this means something special to me. If, in fact, in chapter 11, 12, 13, Jesus was troubled and then asked us not to be troubled, what is he saying? I think he's saying, I still take death very seriously. I know death really hurts. I know it has a tendency to trouble us all right to the core. Remember a few years ago, when Bishop Paul Galloway was still living, our bishop in residence here, what a dear friend he was to all of us, and a teenage child of a colleague in ministry was killed in an accident. And the bishop asked if I was going to go to the funeral. It wasn't one of our ministers, but one within Oklahoma. And I said, yes. He said, may I ride with you? And I said, of course. And he and I went to that funeral. And it was one of those funerals that you've probably attended at some point where the preacher who was in charge said God's rose garden didn't have enough roses, so he plucked this little rose and added it to the garden and so on. And as the bishop and I rode back to Boston Avenue, he said, Many years ago, Elizabeth and I lost our only daughter in death. And I will be forever grateful that the minister who spoke to us let us grieve the death of our daughter. We had lost somebody very special. The light of our lives, along with their son Paul, we loved her better than life itself. And he let us grieve, knowing that grief was okay. It was okay to grieve that death, in these words, is troubling. So Jesus is not saying that death is not troubling. He is not saying that death is not serious, that we should wipe it away very quickly and pretend that it does not hurt, that it does not disrupt, that it does not leave a hole in a person's life for the rest of that person's life. I think what he's saying is what Ruth Rowan mentioned in one of her stories. She said a large farming ranching operation had announced that they needed more help. And one particular young man had filled out a form giving his past experience, his qualifications. But right at the end of his application, he had written, I can sleep when the wind blows. They didn't understand exactly what he meant by that, but all of his other qualifications seemed to be in order. They interviewed him, liked him very much, and hired him. It was only a few months later when they were awakened in the middle of the night with a clap of thunder, and they could hear hail falling outside, pouring down rain and the wind blowing. They rushed out to find every gate appropriately closed, every door appropriately locked, every shutter battened down exactly as it ought, and the young man fast asleep. And then they knew what he had said. I can sleep when the wind blows because I've done my work before the storm came. And 
I believe Jesus is saying to people of faith, I know how tough death is. I do not minimize it for a moment. But those who do the hard work of faith will be able in that moment to do what they need to do and to do it in faith, in love, and understanding the ultimate outcome. Let's move on. Number two here. Second imperative verb, believe in God. This is a decision we make. We do or we don't believe. We see or we don't see. Just a couple of days ago, Gail and I went to the Museum of Natural History in London. It's a wonderful museum. She and I love museums, and we had circled that we wanted to see this one in particular. We always enjoy seeing these great collection of dinosaur bones reassembled. We enjoy reading about some scientist's theory that this was a plant eater and this was a carnivore and so on, how much this one weighed and how fast it could run. And then we got into a big section about human beings, uh, when human beings first appeared on the planet Earth and who our ancestry probably were. And there was a quiz there, one of these interactive things. Are we more related to this animal or that animal, this animal, that animal? Uh, upland gorillas and chimpanzees are our closest cousins. There was a large marble statue there of Charles Darwin. A lot of talk about the evolution. Gail and I read that, looked at, even took a picture of this beautiful statue of Charles Darwin. Do we see in these vast billions of years and billions upon billions of stars the hand of one created being, one God who created the heavens and the earth? Or do we see nothing? Nothing in control, no purpose, no movement of history, no significant outcome, if you would. Elizabeth Sherrill wrote about walking along the bank of the Mississippi River. She was at a very wide part of the Mississippi River, and she said as she walked along, suddenly she was aware that a huge oil tanker was moving down the river. It was so far from her, she said, I, I really couldn't even hear it. It seemed to be moving very quickly, going with the current downriver. And in a moment, it was around the bend. I started to walk away, only to hear this strange sound behind me. It was making such a noise, I turned to look, and it was a two-foot wave, the wake of that great ship. The river was so wide, and I so far from the ship, that it had taken this long for the wake to get to me. But when it got there, it was powerful. It sloshed up onto the shore. And then she said, isn't this the way we experience God moving through history? Only when God's already gone around the next bend or two do we realize that God was in that moment. God was working in that time and place. God was speaking to me through this person, through that group, through this, this group of friends, this stranger perhaps. God was speaking to me. God was moving there. But history does have meaning and purpose. And we're still learning just how God brought all things into being and how long it took him to do that and how he's still creating today. But you and I take seriously Jesus' imperative verb here, believe in God. Number three, believe also in me. Thursday in London, Gail and I went to the Jewish Museum. We had circled a lot of things that we wanted to see, but this was one of those. And we had to make a couple of changes in the underground system to finally get to this Jewish Museum. It wasn't big, 
but it was beautiful. It was really beautiful. There were two older people there, an older man, older woman, uh, who were showing us around who didn't have many people there. And they were showing us around and explaining various things to us. Uh, finally, the man looked at us and said, are you Jewish? And we said, no, we're not Jewish. We are Gentile Christians. But we count the two rabbis in our city, two of our dearest friends. We have great love and appreciation for Rabbi Charles Sherman and Rabbi Mark Fitzman, their spouses and families. We, we really think the world of those two faith communities and our congregation enjoys our relationship with them. And we've been in their houses of worship and they in ours and so on. And the man said, fine. He, he, he thought that was fine. And as I talked with him and we looked around, I kept remembering the first rabbi we had in our Barton Clinton Gordy series, Rabbi Herman Shalman from Chicago. Rabbi Shalman's first presentation on Sunday morning was called The God of Sinai. Remember that? The God of Sinai. The God who spoke to Moses in a burning bush, who sent Moses back to Egypt to face down Pharaoh and lead his people to freedom. The God who brought Moses and that freed people back to Sinai so that Moses went back up the mountain, spent 40 days and nights, and came down with the Ten Commandments. He talked about the God who reveals himself. And he was saying God revealed himself through a burning bush. God revealed himself through the giving of a name no one had ever had for him before. Through the freeing of his people from slavery through the giving of Ten Commandments for effective, meaningful ways to structure our relationships with each other as well as knowing our relationship with God. It was a powerful sermon. But on Tuesday night, his fourth presentation, he talked about the God of Auschwitz. And you know that Gail and I have been there. We've gone cell by cell. We spent hours at Auschwitz. We spent hours at Birkenau. We spent hours in Majdanek. And we had a, a, a special guide each place leading just the two of us through, letting us ask our questions. Uh, this God of Auschwitz, he described the death of his own mother, his own father. His mother was at Dachau, just outside Munich. His father was imprisoned in Munich, and both of them had died. And then he came to talk about the God of the broken heart, of how the death of every Jewish child broke the heart of God. Every teenager's death broke the heart of God. Every older man and woman's death broke the heart of God. And that it was his responsibility and the Jewish people's responsibility and all the rest of our responsibility to help heal the broken heart of God. And then he looked right at you and me and said, but who am I to tell you about the God of the broken heart. Do you remember that? He was acknowledging that God has revealed himself to you and me in Jesus of Nazareth. He's revealed himself to us in Jesus of Nazareth. Mary's child is the clearest picture of our God that we have. And Jesus is saying, before the resurrection... I know this is going to be tough to believe in a crucified Messiah. But I'm asking you to believe in me. This is the way God's heart works. This is the way God's heart works. God.
puts himself out for the well-being of his children again and again and again. But for you and me, never so significantly as in Jesus Christ. Number four. I'm going to my Father, but I will come again, and I will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do the hard work of faith long before you come to death with someone you love or to your own. Believe in God. Believe in me. Believe God wants you to be with him forever. Three weeks ago, Gail and I flew out of here on a Friday night. Early the next morning, while you were still asleep, we were in London, and we were taken to uh, the port at Southampton and got onto a ship. Five o'clock it sailed. And with still several hours of daylight, we moved out of that uh, port into the English Channel. Uh, I'd seen the English Channel before. We crossed it before on a hovercraft over to Calais. The, weather, the water can be really choppy and rough in the English Channel. And I thought back. First time I remember hearing about the English Channel, I was in the fourth grade. I was 10 years old. I was at the movie theater on a Saturday afternoon, and the old movie tone news was going, the eyes and ears of the world. An American woman named Florence Chadwick had just swum across the English Channel in both directions. First woman ever to do that. Wow. I didn't know just how far that was, but it sounded very impressive. She'd been hours and hours in the water. A year later, she decided that she was going to attempt a similar feat in this country. She was going to swim from Los Angeles out to Catalina Island, 21 miles away. But the day she had chosen, when then the eyes and ears of the world were there to record it, it was really cold and really foggy. She went into the water and started swimming, a little boat on either side of her, watching, looking after. She was in the water 15 hours swimming, tide working against her, cold, fog. After 15 hours, she asked to be taken out of the water. And those closest to her tried to reason with her. She said, I want to be taken out of the water. They took her out of the water into the boat and discovered they were less than half mile from Catalina Island. And Florence said later, I think I could have made it if I could have seen the island if I could have seen it, I think I could have made it. And Jesus says, it's out there, that island, that special place. Trust me, even if you don't see it, do the hard work of faith. Believe in God. Believe also in me. God wants you and me to be with him forever.